0: Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Morning, welcome to Crossroads. My name is Charlie. If we haven't met yet, stop by and say hi after the service. I'll be right down here. New season, new sermon series. We are starting our summer series today on the Ten Commandments, and I, I Charlie Ridenauer, am going to talk to you guys about the joy of boundaries. <laughs> and if you know me, you're laughing. <laughs> This morning, some of the staff said, you're going to talk about the joy of... It is not. My initial inclination towards rules is to run to them for my good. So today should be pretty interesting. But before we get into that uh, at Crossroads, before we dive into scripture each and every week, we acknowledge this space is holy because God is with us, because Jesus walks before us because the Holy Spirit indwells us. We acknowledge that the way we process what happens today is different than how culture tells us to process Our culture is critical by definition so that you can feel better about you, but that's not what the Scriptures ask us to do. The Scriptures instead teach that when we read the Scriptures and when we meet with God, it's for the express purpose of being convicted by the Spirit of God so that we might walk more in Christ-likeness. The phrase we use is the move of the Spirit is inward toward conviction, not outward to critique. And so this morning, we come here and we lay aside our inclination to critique, we lay aside our inclination to say, well, the sermon wasn't funny enough or good enough or short enough. It won't be the last one, I promise. Uh, and instead, we ask the question, what is the Holy Spirit speaking to your spirit this morning? Because God is speaking through his scripture. So we're going to take a couple seconds and just pray. I'll ask that you pray uh, silently if you're comfortable with that. I'll ask that you pray for me, uh, and then we will kick it off. So let's pray together. God, I'm thankful to be here. Once again, to remind us what's worthy of our worship, to remind us what roots or what is the foundation for our goings outside of this place. God, I'm so glad that you are an interactive God, that you speak with us, that you go before us, that you care for us. This morning, as we open your scripture, Holy Spirit, speak to us, guide us, convict us, So we might see a bigger picture of a God who's at work in our world through individuals that follow Jesus. If you're comfortable, just take a few seconds and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to your spirit this morning. I also ask that you pray for me that the next 30 minutes or so reflect the goodness and beauty of God as we start to talk about the Ten Commandments. Pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. So I'm in an interesting stage of life right now. I Growing up, had heard about something called the terrible twos. I'm sure you have as well with your children. And then this year, this new phrase entered my vocabulary. I'd never heard it before because people didn't talk about it because it's clearly so painful. It's called the three-nager. Do you know what that is? It's when your kid turns three and they get worse than they were when they were two. So, my kid is in this interesting phase whenever I try and find some boundary around the rhythms and structures of our lives at home. When I say, hey, kiddo, we're not going to do this, she'll look at me and she'll yell, no, dad. And then she'll yell, I'm done with you. And she'll sprint out of the room and slam her door. I <laughs> can't wait till when she's a teenager. Can I quit? Um, And and it's really interesting to see this progression of my daughter from, you know, what she was at two to now what she's at three, and this building and increasing independence in this small child, because you know what she wants? She wants to be happy. You know what I want? I want for her to be happy. The problem is we're just getting there in two different places. I feel like right now in our world, whether you're three or 30 or something else, in our world right now, there is this tension, even a juxtaposition between being happy and being not told what to do. Between being joyful and not wanting anybody to tell me what joy looks like outside of what I define joy as. There's a philosopher about 130 years ago who saw this coming. This is not the first time this has happened in societies. He had this quote, uh, God is dead. Any philosopher, philosophy 101 class is going to get you there. It's a guy named Frederick Nietzsche. And what he knew was at the beginning of the Enlightenment period where individual freedoms kind of escalated over corporate good, where we decided that we're smart enough to figure out what good is outside of other influences, he looked at the world and he simply said, I fear that we're getting to a place where God is dead, meaning we don't need the ways of God anymore because of the escalation of people's view of their own good. There's a book... By a scholar and theologian named Mark Sayers, the book's called Disappearing Church. He writes this. Post-Christian, post-Christianity intuitively yearns for the justice and shalom of the kingdom, the good and happiness of God when he created, whilst defending the reign of individual will. The cultural ambition to replace the kingdom vision for the good life, a future world of human rights, dignity, freedom, love, and equality, but all without Jesus at the center. He'd go on to say something like, we want the benefit of the kingdom without the king. We want the fruits, but not the roots of a life with God. We all want happiness, but we also all don't want to be told what to do. And in those kind of societies, he goes on to talk about that the highest good is individual freedom, is happiness, is is self-definition and self-expression, and the primary social ethic is tolerance of everyone's self-defined quests for individual freedom or self-expression. There's philosophers and there's professors that talk about our move lately from a world of we to a world of me. One professor said is from uh, St. Anselm's College says, in our own age, authenticity is defined by how true you are to yourself, not how true you are to your calling or your community or your covenant relationships, but to yourself. And I bring that up to say this, in a world that highly emphasizes your ability to find your own good without listening to other influences of what good might be, what does love look like? I feel like in that world, we're forced into this definition where love is basically just not disagreeing with your version of good, or we run screaming, I'm done with you, slam the door, and ignore. It's the world we live in. Today, we're talking about the laws of God. That's a hard conversation in a world where nobody gets to make my laws but me. So, Nietzsche came and said that God is dead. This guy was an atheist. He's a big atheist, capital A. He never believed in God, never wanted to. But when he said that phrase 130 years ago, he was sad. You know that? He goes on to write later in works that he's afraid it would devolve into a staunch pessimism. He quote says, it's a will to nothingness that was antithetical to the life-affirming philosophy of God. His fear of nihilism, which means nothing has meaning, and our reaction to it was shown in the work in which he said, What I relate is the history of the next two centuries. I describe what is coming, what can no longer come differently, the advent of nihilism. For some time now, our whole European culture has been moving towards a catastrophe. An atheist mourning rather than celebrating the death of God. Instead of liberation, he saw anarchy. The book of Judges talks about it. It's a quote from Judges 21. It says, in those days, Israel had no king. Each man did what he considered to be right. Here's why I say all this again, because we have this culture that Nietzsche saw coming, the rise of the enlightenment, the rise of individual will, the rise of my ability to choose my own happiness, my my question, simply in that world where love looks like me, not uh, disagreeing with you, are we a more happy people? Has it led to life? Most stats are gonna say no. There's a, happiness, uh, there's a happiness survey done every year. America is nowhere near the top of the happiest countries in the world. Uh, Gallup did a poll. They've done one every year for a few decades now. It's been asking Americans how, they f- how they're feeling about different aspects of life and policy issues for the last 20 years. This year, they have 29 different measurements. This year, just 38% of Americans say they're satisfied. In 2020, before the pandemic began, an average of 48% of Americans say they were satisfied. There's a big drop in 2021 to 41% and this year to 38%. The General Society uh, Social Survey has been asking Americans since 1972 whether all things considered they're very happy. Pretty happy or not too happy at all. The percentage who say this year that they're very happy outran the percentage who said they're not too happy in every poll taken before this year. This year, 24% said they were not too happy and only 19% they were very ha- said they were very happy. I'm saying all this to say, we for so long have thought that happiness is going to be a byproduct if I can live my life how I want to. It just doesn't seem to be working out that way. And as followers of Jesus, we're called to love others. And in our society of self-good, love means not disagreeing with your version of self-good, what and where do the laws of God fit into that culture? We're spending the summer talking about the Ten Commandments. We're spending the summer talking about the boundaries that God gave, not just Israel, but humanity as a whole. And I want to ask the question this morning, before we get into specific boundaries, what's the purpose of the laws in the first place? Are they antiquated? Are they not? Are they good for you? Are they good for me? What role do they have? And I want to spend a week doing that because I have seen the laws of God been misused and abused before. I have seen the laws of God so quickly turn into legalism that we don't see anymore the beauty of God, the intent of God behind his laws. I went to a Bible college, and it was fine, but I think I, think I had 60 pages of rules that I had to sign, right? And every time I tell that story, it grows. So 70 pages of rules that... <laughs> I had to sign anything from seriously, I couldn't wear a baseball cap when I ate. I was actually the first class at my college that was allowed to wear jeans to class. Uh, I came in at 19. I had a curfew till I was twenty a curfew till I was twenty-one there. True story, just a side note for fun. Uh, I might have broken some rules in my college experience. I might have snuck out past curfew and got caught coming in a back door once or twice because I was at a prayer vigil. <clears throat> and <laughs> And I'm 21 years old, and because I got caught, I literally was grounded on my school campus like I was 13. This was not a public education system, all right? I had rules against what I could and could not wear. I had rules when I went to my school against how long my hair could be. I, I, I showed up with hair down to my uh, shoulders, and they said, that is absolutely not acceptable, I had rules that said I couldn't watch movies on campus. If I wanted to go to a movie, I had to sign out and stay somewhere else overnight and come back the next day so the sin didn't get right in the sheets, you know? (laughs) Here's where I bring that up. I I didn't understand most of them. I'm sure they had good intention at some point. I, I just didn't see why. And because I didn't see why and because it was a bit legalistic and because I didn't see the goodness of God in those things. And so today, before we get into the actual laws, I want to fight our inclination to go towards legalism, to just do it because we're supposed to. And I want to talk about why the law is good for us. Why God gave the law in the first place. Why we can look at people that don't follow Jesus, that might quote some law from Leviticus and say, let's have a conversation about why you don't see that as good, and I do. So to kick it off you got to talk about when it was given and how it was given. Um, We're going to be in a couple scriptures, but kind of bounce around a a little bit. You have to understand the context that the law was given. So, So God brought his people out of Egypt. They were there for 400 years. They were slaves in Egypt, and they came into a place where they didn't know who they were anymore, and they didn't know how to live anymore. Over time, the people you live around will shape you, not the other way around. I was having lunch with a former student this week. He's going back to college. And I said, who do you want to become? I said, find those people and hang around those people because who you hang around will shape who you become. That is the gospel truth of identity. Proverbs talks about it. I'm going to tell my kid that when she gets to be 13 through the bedroom door clearly, but I'm going to tell her that at some point. And so Israel at this point, they had been so formed and shaped by Egypt, they didn't even know it yet. And Egypt's culture wasn't necessarily what I would call a God-fearing culture. They had, I'm not going to get too far into it, they had large sexual perversions, they worshipped about a hundred or so gods, give or take. They had gods for every season and every crop and every natural disaster and every natural anything. They had lots of different gods and over time Israel started to be like the people that they were around and didn't even notice it. Because that's what happens over time, slow, change is slow. Identity building is slow. And then you look back in the mirror and you say, how did I become who I am now? A a small example is, uh, you know, we watch this service back every week. And we say, hey, what was good and what was bad? And about a month ago, we started noticing that there was this blue hue on the live stream that we hadn't noticed. I had turned into Papa Smurf, didn't even know it. And as a short person, that was a trigger for me. We had people that hadn't watched in a while, and they said, hey, what's wrong with your live stream? We said, I I, I don't know. We <laughs> oh, no. is it blue to anybody? Yes, it's very, very blue, you know? We just hadn't noticed it, because week in and week out, we watch it, and slowly over time, we realized that this wasn't where we started. So, so part of what the law does is the law actually separates God's standard of good from the standard of good that, they were, um, that they'd grown accustomed to. I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says a man does not call a crooked uh, does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. And so this is what you have to understand about how the law is laid out in the Old Testament. The law is the Hebrew word for Torah, and it doesn't just mean law. And what you'll see when you look at the law given, starting with the Ten Commandments, they're the first ones, and then it goes through Numbers in Deuteronomy. There's 613 total that God gives His people. Total. It's a lot of rules. But you have to understand how he gave those rules. He didn't call Moses up there and say, here's all 613, go and live those out, don't break them, I'll get mad at you. That's not how it happened. Over the course of the story of Israel, the Torah, the law, is not just the laws given, but the narrative, the story of the laws given. And so if you look at how God gave the laws, it shows the purpose of the law. So, example time. At the beginning of it, you get the Ten Commandments, then you get 42-ish more, called the ceremonial laws, give or take. The covenantal laws, what most people call them, actually. And then there's a story about Moses walking down from the mountain, and he sees this debauchery with the Israelite people and this golden calf. God gets really mad. And then Moses comes back up to the mountain, and God gives them more laws. And there's a repeated pattern in the Old Testament law narrative, that they would be given laws, they would live a little bit, they'd break some laws, they'd do some more things that were really terrible, and God say, would say, you need some more laws because you're not getting the point of the laws in the first place. It's this story that goes into how God gives the law, not just a proclamation of here's all the laws, go and live. It's a referendum on how they're acting. And God seeing how they're acting, saying, no, no, you've missed the boat again. Here's some more that'll help you see more of how I want you to live. The purpose of the law is to show people why they need the law. That's why Romans says, For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. The first thing we see about the laws is they're a reflection. They're a reflection of God's good in spite of us wanting to find morality by what we see in the mirror, you know? And that's how most laws are given. Most laws are given after something bad happens. We see something bad and we say, oh, that's not good. Let's not do that again. That's what I do with my kids all the time. Something bad happens, I'm like, well... That, that, that can't be good for us, let's not live that way. This week I started looking up fun and funny laws in our country, and there's a couple that I love, I'm going to read to you, some laws that happened because of how people responded, this is one of my favorites, Arkansas has a law that says visitors beware, it's strictly prohibited to pronounce Arkansas incorrectly. Per the state code, the only acceptable pronunciation is in three syllables with the final S silent and an A in each syllable with the Italian sound and the accent on the first and last syllable. Because if anybody needs to talk about dialect in this world, it's Arkansas people, all right? <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> but literally there's a law in Arkansas that says you can't mispronounce Arkansas because people kept on doing it. There's a law in Connecticut that says pickles must bounce. Because for a long time, people sold pickles as not pickles. And there's a law that says it has to bounce and how high. Iowa has a law against faking butter. Because I love Iowa. <laughs> Dairy calf farmers of the world, they're not going to let you say margarine is good for you. And they have a, a law against faking butter. In Virginia, there's a law against skunks being pets. <laughs> how do you think that came about, everybody? <laughs> In Texas... I'll throw Texas in there just because we're here. In Texas, there's a law in, specifically in Galveston saying you can't throw litter out of planes. <laughs> I don't know how that happened. I don't know if I want to know, but, but I can imagine. Here, here's the point. Laws are a referendum on the people acting in ways they shouldn't. So what God didn't do was say, here's all my laws. Keep them because you need to live in my ways. He says, I want you guys to reflect who I am. And over the course of a About a year, two, or three in the Israelite narrative, as they lived, he kept coming back and saying, hey, here's some more laws because you're not quite getting it yet. And so the purpose of the law that we need to understand is it is a reflection of God's goodness, not our morality, because it's so easy, (laughs) it's so easy to look in the mirror and see good when we shouldn't. It's so easy to think that we're the only justified good ones and everybody else is wrong. Jesus talks about it trying to judge others, take the log out of your eye kind of sort of mentality. And what the law does, it's the base point for for us recognizing that we all, all have missed God's mark of good. We need the law of God to fight our proclivity, to define morality by looking in a mirror instead of looking at the author of all goodness. So why is the law good for you and me? Like it or not, it shows us that The morality isn't defined by me. The morality isn't defined by my intentions. It's defined by a God who created with intention. And he said, this is what good looks like. And if we don't have law, we forget that. We start centering good on our version of life. And that's not good for us. So the law is a mirror by which we see that we need Jesus. That's what Romans talks about. That's what Paul talks about. That's where the Bible says the law had a time, place, and purpose, and then Jesus. Uh, Two, I think also the law is an identity shaper for us. So before we even get into the Ten Commandments, it starts like this. I, the Lord your God, in Exodus 20, verse 2, I, the Lord your God, brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of slavery. Uh, Again, we have this idea that they were slaves for 400 years. 400 years they were slaves. Here's what I know to be true. If something is true for 400 years about you, I bet you start believing it about yourself. There's a philosopher, uh, psychologist, excuse me, named David Brenner. He says, it's not so much that we tell lies, it's that we live them. This idea that over time, Israel thought they were slaves, they knew they were slaves, they thought they were nothing else but slaves. This is how God begins the Ten Commandments. I brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of slavery. He is redefining his people around who he is and what he did for them. One of my favorite quotes is, by a guy named Richard Hayes. He wrote a book called The Moral Vision of the New Testament, and he says, be who you now are is the ethic for followers of Jesus. What God does, and this is what we have to understand, when he gives the law, he doesn't give the law and say, I want you to make me happy by living these out. He doesn't say to his people, I'm going to deliver if you keep seven out of the ten most days of the week. He says, I have delivered already. Regardless of how well you've already done these things, now, because of that, in response of that, live out these laws well. You can talk about the, the implication of what they would call priming words or language. There's a couple examples I can give you. My favorite's a writer named David Brooks. Wrote a book called The Social Animal. Malcolm Gladwell as well. have talked about this quite a bit. And he talks about, in his book, an example of a bingo hall where they had two different groups, and in one of the groups in the bingo hall, they gave words about uh, older things. So they gave words about like elderly examples. Um, and then the other one, in this hall, they gave words about more aggressive behavior. And he said they watched people walk out of the room, and the people given the words that were more kind of reserved walked out slower than the people who were given more aggressive words. In Malcolm Gladwell's books, he talks about priming language, and he said there's an example a New York University psychologist ran a study, and essentially, I'll I'll summarize it for you. The study was supposed to, you're supposed to go into a room and you had this word search. And this one group was given word searches with aggressive words, rude and not patient and all those fill in the blank words. And another group was given a list of words that was more kind, like, you know, wait and take your turn, fill in the blank there. And the whole point of the study was at the end of it, you were supposed to go and hand your survey to a guy at the end of the hall. What they didn't know was the guy at the end of the hall was going to be in the middle of the conversation, and this is what the study measured. It says that on average, on average, the people that was in the, quote, rude group interrupted the guy speaking after five minutes. On average, the people who were not in the rude group, actually 82% of them didn't interrupt until the study was done 15 minutes later, Right? The idea of priming language, defining who you are, be who you now are, what God is doing as he's giving the Ten Commandments, you have to understand, is not saying live into this so that you can become my people. He's saying, I've chosen you, now you get to live this out. There's a fundamental difference in how we see laws and see rules if we understand we're not earning favor, but we've already had favor with God. And so we had to take them to the middle of nowhere to help redefine them, because for 400 years, they thought they were something else. For 400 years, they thought they were enslaved and nothing more than a slave to other people. And sometimes, that's the best thing we can do, is pull ourselves out of the current cultural context and remind ourselves who we are. That's why we do the prayer at the beginning of every service. Three weeks ago, I went on a hike with some friends with no cell phone service, and nothing but us and our thoughts, And it's beautifully refreshing to be reminded who you are in a culture that bombards you by telling you what you should be. I think, on a little side note, I think that's one of the dangers of social media. I'm not anti-social media. But one of the dangers and why you see this rise in anxiety, especially in teens and teenage girls, is because kids don't have anywhere to go anymore to be defined by who they should be defined by. So when I grew up, I didn't have a cell phone until I was 16. I shared it with my twin brother, and it got turned off when I went home. My first cell phone, actually, was my dad's bag phone. You guys know what those are? I am old, everybody. But every night I came home, and I couldn't talk with my friends in real time till 2 in the morning. I had to sit there with my parents, and they were a refreshing reminder that I wasn't defined by what was happening in high school. We don't have that anymore. Conversations follow you home, and there's no break to remind us and define us by what God says. And so God brings His people to the middle of nowhere and says, "Let me define you." The whole idea here is that God didn't send Moses to Israel with a new method of forging a relationship, but instead He went forward with grace. He said that obedience flows from grace; it doesn't buy it. It's an important distinction as we talk about why the people were supposed to live out the laws and what that does. If you understand that, is it changes our it changes our mindset towards why we follow. If we think it's a duty to follow the law, then it'll be hard. But if we see the law like this, as a response to God's grace and goodness, it moves us from duty to delight in how we follow the law of God. Because look what he's done for us. Why would I not want to live out the ways of this good God who saved me? Because he did. That's why Psalm 119 it's the longest psalm in your it's the longest chapter in your bible and most of it is all about the goodness of the law of god i'll read verses 12 through 16 he says i'll praise you o lord teach me your decrees i've recited aloud all the regulations you've given us i've rejoiced in your laws as much as in your riches i've rejoiced in your laws as much as in your riches i will study the commandments and reflect on your ways i'll delight in your decrees and not forget your word. Once understood, Psalm 19, it makes perfect sense while the longest psalm in the Bible is a celebration of God's law because it's a celebration of God's grace to them. Christopher Wright has a book called Old Testament Ethics and the People of God. And he says, God acts first and calls people to respond. This is the starting point for the moral teaching of the Old Testament God takes the initiative in grace and redeeming action and then makes his ethical demand in light of it. Ethics then becomes a matter of response with gratitude within a personal relationship, not of blind obedience to rules or adherence to timeless principles. We have to see the law not as a way to get God's good graces, but as a reminder of God's good graces already given out. It fundamentally changes our relationship to the law. It moves us from duty to delight. Some writers would talk about the Ten Commandments specifically being like wedding vows for Israel, being this beautiful depiction of what life could be like. I have three weddings in the next couple weeks, and uh, I always say when I do weddings that the vow portion is interesting because you're about to say these vows that are really, really, really lofty, and you're going to be really, really, really bad at them at first. Nobody steps into a marriage and wants to love somebody when they're sick. You want to get a hotel and come back when they're better, okay? (laughs) When my kid is sick, like last week, I want to get a hotel and come back when they're better. Uh, But here's what marriage vows are. Because we've chosen one another, I get to live these things out and get better and better and better at it. These are the vows that God gave his people. I've chosen you, so let us live into these principled ways to live out the goodness of what marriage should be and what my relationship with you should be So for Israel, from the start, the laws were an identity marker, not an identity maker. It was identity lived from, not identity lived for. And we fundamentally have to see the same thing when we talk about God's regulations, rhythms, and rules for us. Some are the same as Israel, some are not. We have to see the law not as earning a way into the good graces of God, but his grace has already been given out to us. It fundamentally changes the way that we interact with his rules. We go from duty to delight. And then thirdly, so I think the law is good for us. It shows us a mirror of who we really are. I think the law is not only really good for us, I think the law is an identity for us as well. And finally, I think the law is just simply put for our good. I like what Ignatius, St. Ignatius says. He says that sin um, is the unwillingness to trust that what God wants from me is only my deepest happiness. And here's where that tension between, I want happiness, but I don't want to be told what to do, comes into play. I like what John Mark Comer, a pastor, says. He says, sin sabotages our capacity for happiness by appealing to our God-given desire for happiness. At the end of the day, if we understand that the law, is to show a reflection of ourself and to find our identity in a God who's good and who's gracious and who's picked us and who's given and who's redeemed and who's rescued, we have to ask the final question, do you firmly believe that the law of God leads to your best good, or do you not? This is where we get into trouble in our culture. So what I wanna do is talk through a couple different ways that we can look at this. And if you want some really good resources on this, I'll give you a couple right now, we're running out of time, but uh, one is my favorite preacher, is a guy named Ben Stewart. He was at this little small ministry in a and called Breakaway uh, for a few years, they got like 40,000 college kids a week. So, right there behind CBC in attendance. And now he has a church in DC called Passion City. And he's phenomenal. And he did a sermon on March 14th. I'll give you the name, but you can Google it. Uh, it's called Perspective on the State of Modern Christianity. And what he does is, atheist or not, Christian or not, he just simply says, This is why Christianity is good, whether you believe in it or not. This is how God's view of the world leads to a better world. And you can't dispute the facts. And he just throws facts at you and it's beautiful to watch and see. If you question whether the ways of God are good for you and those around you, listen to that sermon. Another article that we'll throw in the live stream, I've quoted a few times in the last few months, by a pastor named Josh Howerton. It's uh, from um, a, uh, uh, like a, a blog that he wrote, just talking about, hey, here's five stats that show you that going to church is actually better for you than not. Again, regardless of your religious affiliation. So you can check those two out. But I want to get into the Old Testament law a little bit. Because here's what people do, and this is a pet peeve of mine. They'll go and they'll quote some verse from Leviticus, and they'll say, See, how could this be good? God is not loving. He's repressive. He's oppressive. He's fill in the blank here, right? God cannot be good because look at this law that he gave. And what you have to understand and realize is some of these laws are meant for us, but most of them aren't. Because we live in a different covenant than the Old Testament. Some biblical scholars will talk about how the law is broken down. And, and they give buckets just to help us understand. And they'll give three for all 613. They'll give the civil, the ceremonial, and the moral, if you will. And so the civil are those things that respond to like, life in day-to-day Israel. We do not do life in day-to-day Israel. My ox is not in danger of goring your ox. Do you know why? Because I will never own an ox, all right? There's a ceremonial which deals directly with like the, the, the order of the priest, and, and, and they do not happen today. I am not in the Levitical clan or tribe. I am not a priest like the Old Testament describes. Those rules are not for me. And there's a third section called the moral laws, the Ten Commandments, which basically say the character of God doesn't change. And because the character of God doesn't change, his standards of good doesn't change. Thank God, by the way. <laughs> Otherwise, what would good be? And so oftentimes when people go to the Old Testament and they say, well, God is not good or he's repressive or oppressive, they'll quote these levitical laws and they say, how can this be good? But we have to understand that these laws were given to a time and place that is not this time and place through a culture that is not our culture. And so you have to understand the difference there. Let me give you three examples real quick. First one, Leviticus 19.28, you will not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor tattoo any marks on you, I am the Lord. If you're a young, hip, with it pastor under 25, you have to get tattoos in seminary. I'm pretty sure they make you now, right? It's got to be right here and it's got to be in Hebrew. That's something totally else, right? So people go here and say, hey, we're not allowed to have tattoos. And that's not true. (laughs) That was for Israel to distinguish them from the other people. There were some pretty awful practices back then of cutting and mutilating flesh. And so God says, don't do this. You're different than those people. And when they look at you, they should see it. So it's not talking about tattoos today. It has an implication completely different than the ones we know. Let me reference two more for you, dealing with things that we might hear today. I'll give you one that I've heard and another that's the most prominent. Um, And these aren't on the screen. You can go in your Bibles and read them if you want to. One is Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. It talks about divorce and marriage. And if you read through it, it basically says that uh, a man can divorce a woman by simply giving her a certificate of divorce. And if you're a woman in you're hearing that, you're saying, how awful is that? And let me tell you something. It sounds really bad to us now, but if you do your research and you understand the world they lived in, women were traded without any, any, any bearing on their value. Even in the first century world with Jesus, a, a man could divorce a wife. For, there's a Hebrew interpretation of the law called the Mishnah. And basically it says that Hebrew men could divorce their wives if they, if they burned their food. True story. Women had not much value. And so what God is doing here is saying, no, 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 I'm coming through your culture. And if, if you want to divorce your wife, which is not my intended purpose, you have to do it formally, and you have to do it in a way that shows that she didn't mess up or commit uh, uh, adultery. You have to do it in a way that gives her value and purpose so that she can marry again. In that current culture, the, the, the law that God gives about divorce is actually very loving towards women whom culture didn't love very much and see value in. And there's another one, and we're not going to go there or read it because it's pretty sensitive, in Deuteronomy 22, verse 28. And and it talks about, and this is the one I hear argued against the most. That's why I'm talking about it. It it talks about what happens if if men take advantage of women in a really bad way. You can go read it. And it says that if that happens, then the man actually has to marry the woman. And if you're reading that, you're thinking, how could this be good, right, or loving at all? Because you have to understand in that context, in that world, If men wronged women in that way, they would not get married again. They would not be given over. They would not have kids. Their life was over. And oftentimes they died. And so what God says to his people is you won't be those people. If you hurt someone in that way, you'll protect her for the rest of your life. And there's no getting out of it. If you take those steps, this is going to be with you and she will be your responsibility for the rest of your life. So don't do it because you're not getting out of this one. It was a beautiful protection for women in a society and a world that didn't. And I bring that up simply to say, the laws of God in those two instances and others are there for our good and our flourishing. And so often we read the Old Testament laws and think they're there to repress us. They're there to oppress people. But that's not the case when you read it in context. That's not the case when you see the expressed influence of Jesus and his rhythms and his ways on to the world in which we live. And fundamentally what it comes down to is what then is the purpose of the law in a world that sees love as just not disagreeing with your version of happiness? Jesus answers that question. In Matthew 24, some religious teachers go to Jesus and they say, what's the best law you have? You know the story probably pretty well. I'll quote what Jesus says. He says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second was like this, Love your neighbor as yourself. And all the law and the prophet depends on these two commandments. So what Jesus does is doesn't say the law is bad. (laughs) What he does is he says that the law is literally God's love lived out for God and for others. So, so why is the law good for us? In a world that defines love through an acceptance of self-expression with no basis in the king but wants the benefit of the kingdom, the law of God is the love of God lived out. So why are there joy and boundaries? Because it's how we love one another well. It's how we love God well. That's a really hard message in a world that doesn't like boundaries. It's something I need to remind myself because I'm not so good with them either. It moves us from duty to delight. It gives us identity. It shows us a mirror. But fundamentally, it's how we love others well. So we're going to focus on the Ten Commandments and find joy in the boundaries God gave because they're good for you and they're good for me. And it's how we love you and it's how you love me. It's how we love God together. And we're going to say that God set boundaries on our world because he loved us and we live into those because we love others. And so today is a little context around what we're going to be doing. And so my charge to you this week is read Psalm 119 every day. Ask that the Lord might give you a love for his laws. It's really easy to love the laws of God that you love. Like don't murder. Everybody can get on board with that. Yep. I hope. (laughs) Um, But where we find it hard is when our version of good conflicts with God's. And at that point, you have to say, who's good is better? What defines me? And what's a better way to love those around me? The Ten Commandments were given to answer that question. The rhythms and ways of God were given to answer that question. So pray Psalm 119 this week and ask God to well up in you a love for his law. And then we can be a people that delight in the law of God in such a way that others ask, how is that happening and why is that happening? And we can point to all the stats and say, because it's better for you. When I was a middle school pastor here, I would take a bunch of kids to Pine Cove every year. It was just organized-ish chaos for a while. We took lots and lots of kids. And naturally, when you get about 115 or whatever kids in buses and you take them there, there's going to be some complaining. And so every year... I would send out, not a rules list, because let me tell you something, if you're going to go with a bunch of middle school kids somewhere, you need a rules list, or everybody will not come back, and instead of giving a rules list, I actually inherited this from the guy that did the job before me really well, we didn't send out a don't do list, we sent out a get to list, and we told kids, you get to do these things for the good of you and others, let me read a couple, Uh, we said things like, (laughs) uh, once you get checked in, I get to immediately choose to become a happy camper. I will not allow the events of the past, the conditions of the present, or the pressures of the future cause my state of happy, happy, joy, joy to change. I will have so much fun that I'll have plastic surgery to remove the smile from my face. And this includes how I deal with my parents when I'm tired on Saturday night when I get back to my house. We said at mealtimes I get to show up at every meal on time and be considerate of those who cook for me and I get to clean up after myself. We said, I get to make new friends, even if I don't get to room with my old friends. We said, I get to not use my cell phone unless in my cabin and on my bed. Because we knew that the point there was to make community. And then I ended it like this. I understand that if I violate the rules and the spirit of these rules, the first call goes to Charlie. He then gets out of bed and calls my parents. After they wake up from their comfortable home, they will have no choice but to drive two and a half hours to come and get me discussing boarding school options the entire way. Once at Pine Cove and they pick me up, they will put me in the trunk of the car and take me home. While I'm in the trunk, I have to somehow come up with a believable story as to how unfair Charlie and these rules in life is. Then after my parents are already upset with my poor behavioral choices, I'll have to get an additional disciplinary procedures for lying. Then Charlie will note this mistake and remember it for the next 22 years of my life and will likely bring it up during the toast at my wedding reception. (laughs) Those were the days. It's also why I'm not a youth pastor anymore. (laughs) i for sure get fired. <laughs> My point there is simply, instead of being a group of people that sees rules as a duty we have to follow that suppresses our individual freedom, what if we were a community that celebrated God's rules, that we get to follow and live into the ways of Jesus? Because it's how we love one another. May we be that community. And I'll end with more from Psalm 119. Joyful are the people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord. Joyful are those who obey his laws and search for him with all their hearts. They do not compromise with evil and they walk only in his paths. You have charged us with a command to keep your commandments carefully. Oh, that my actions would consistently reflect your decrees. Then I will not be ashamed when I compare my life with your commands. As I learn your righteous regulations, I will thank you by living as I should. May that be our duty. May that be our delight. Might we over the next 10 weeks find joy in God's boundaries as we love one another. Let me pray. God, I'm thankful that you're a God that saw fit to put in some boundaries on life because you cared for us. God, this week as we think about your laws, the ones that we like and the ones that maybe we don't so much, give us just a desire, give us a love, give us a delight in your ways because it's a reflection on you, on who we are in you, and on the good that you want for us. Let's come before us this week. Might we delight in your good ways as we read about the boundaries you put in place for us. We pray this things in the name of Jesus. Amen.